Welcome back to the Moody Profcast. This podcast seeks to explore the intersection between theology and our culture by discussing various topics with the faculty of the Moody Bible Institute. Today, I would like to welcome our guest, Dr. Deb Gordon. Dr. Deborah Gordon is the Gary Chapman Chair of Marriage, Family, Ministry, and Therapy, and she's the Program Head and Associate Professor of Clinical Mental Health Counseling at Moody Theological Seminary and Graduate School. She has a BA from Arizona State University, an MA in Theology, an MA in Psychology, and a PhD in Clinical Psychology from Fuller Theological Seminary. Dr. Gordon is a licensed clinical psychologist who has worked as a change agent for individuals, organizations, and emerging leaders, helping them refine, embrace, and thrive in their purpose. Built on the foundation of relationship, her core philosophy is that collaboration in community produces radical transformation. Dr. Gordon is also the co-host of the show Becoming Well, the podcast with Moody Radio where her and Dr. Mary Hendrickson discuss how the truth of God's word intersects with our mental health and well-being. Dr. Gordon, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you feeling today? I'm feeling great. I am so excited to be here, and um, I love the Moody Profcast, so creative. <laughs> I'll tell you a quick story about uh, how I actually came up with that name. I don't think I've actually mentioned this on the podcast, but originally it was going to be the Moody Prof Podcast. Okay. I was hanging out with some friends, and one of my friends accidentally missed it, missed said it. She was like, "Oh, uh, the Moody Profcast." I was like, "Wait a second, that's brilliant! Yeah. Wait, we should. I'm going to totally rebrand everything." And so it turned into the Moody Profcast. Um, Very cool. And that's what we have today. So. I'm super happy to have uh, Dr. Gordon on my show today. I was like so surprised when you actually responded. I was like, oh my gosh, Dr. <laughs> Gordon responded to my my email. And she's a legend around campus, um, a pioneer in clinical psychology in the Christian world. Um, I am so excited to have her on my show today. So I hope you're excited. Um, I'm excited and we can just go from the top. So Dr. Gordon, tell us, how did you find yourself working in the intersection between theology clinical psychology, counseling practice, and academia. Right. I uh, I don't sleep very much. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, you know, I, a lot of people don't know this about me, but I started off my career in the entertainment industry. I used to work for uh, a little station called NBC. People might know of it. People might not in the streaming world. But um, And I, I loved the work that I was doing, but I always prioritized relationships with the people I worked with. And uh, if anybody is aware of what the entertainment industry is like, but it's very kind of doggy dog world. So you really have to self-promote and in order to get ahead. And somebody gave me the feedback, you know, you're so relational, you're not going to get very far in this world. And so I thought, all right, well, let me take a step back and think about what I'm really passionate about. And relationships bubbled to the, to the surface, but so did transformation. And so I started thinking about what are some of the ways in which I can utilize this interest and this this value of mine for the greater good of community and psychology came to mind. And so I was looking at different programs and um, and really as a, as a believer felt like because God has created us holistically, there has to be a reason why we seek to understand the way in which we make decisions and the way in which our emotions affect our well-being. Um, and it has to be in line with how God created us. So I pursued a degree in clinical psychology, but also in a space where I could study theology too and how those elements intersect. And uh, God kind of steered the the path for the rest of everything else. Yeah, it's um, it's definitely just developed over time, this how, what is clinical counseling in relation to theology? How do we intersect with how we are wired, the book of nature and how our brains are wired and also the book of the word. Yeah. It's definitely an intersection that, I think there's a lot of work to be done that's been doing that work that has been done um, and that work that you are doing. And so 
as you've been a clinical counselor and you've worked in clinical counseling with clients and private practice and through with MTS here, what are some great mental health challenges that you've seen develop more generationally um, over your time in your uh, clinical counseling practice? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, one of the themes I'm seeing more recently is uh, a strong desire for a sense of purpose and meaning in the world. And that in and of itself, when people feel as though they don't have that or they're struggling to, you know, to grasp or understand what their meaning and purpose is, that can bring about feelings of depression and anxiety. I think it motivates a sense of disconnection from the larger world around us. And so one of the questions I love to ask my clients, whether they're believers or not, I love to ask my students this, is how do you define worth and value uh, as a human being. And, you know, if if the people I'm asking the question to are, you know, Christ followers, sometimes they even struggle with that question because most of the time we're not really conscious of it. I think we can give the biblical answer that we believe we're made in the image of God and that gives us our inherent worth and dignity, but do we actually live that out? And so often we place our worth and value in circumstances external to who we are, whether it's our grade point average as a student or success in the classroom, whether it's our, you know, the number of friends we have or our relationship status or how much we accomplish in our work setting, all of that we sort of allow to creep into our identity. It's part of the reason why we unfortunately, when it comes to mental health, will say, I have a specific diagnosis or I am depressed versus I experience the symptoms of this, right? As an external experience of something versus we we make it who we are. So I think that's a big theme that I'm seeing more so now is this desire to have you know, a, a sense of meaning and purpose in who we are, but losing sight of what that really means. Mm, mm. Yeah, that's definitely something I've noticed as well as we've lived in more of a technologicalized society is that entertainment oftentimes can abstract us from meaningful things. And as we have so much access to different te- pieces of te- technology, they could distract us from asking those meaningful questions. Yeah, that's so true. And we allow technology in many ways to, to maybe define those for us. And you know, I think the the thing that is missing with technology at times, there's there's a lot of positives, but it's context, mm-hmm. right? So things like TikTok and Instagram and, and, and Twitter and Snapchat, they give us just, I mean, Snapchat, it's right there in the name. It's a snapshot of something smaller, and we fail to take into account the bigger picture and the bigger context. Mm. So as you observe things, what do you, you think are some key reasons why we become abstracted from eternal and meaningful things mm. in life? Well, I, I was pulling this up. One of my favorite verses uh, is Ecclesiastes 3.11, and it says this, He made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. So the, the thing that strikes me in this verse is he's set eternity. God has set eternity in our hearts, yet he also says we can't even fathom what that means. Mm. And yet, you know, I'll tell my students when they come to my class and they take ethics, that's the first class they take when they start out the grad program. It's professional identity and ethical practice. So it's a lot about what our profession does as clinical mental health counselors and who we are as professionals within it. And I'll tell them a big part of what you're going to learn in this class is how to sit in the gray and I think especially in Christian circles, we're, we're sort of constantly drawn into this conversation around what's black and what's white. And yet that verse, he said eternity in our hearts, but we can't even understand what that means, tells me that God is calling us to a space of living in the uncertainty and the mystery of God. And so 
you know, as I as I think about how that applies to my practice and how, you know, that even influences things like utilizing technology and snippets of life to guide and direct who we are, we've lost the ability to 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 function in these unknown areas without all the answers. And we think because we have these little devices always accessible to us with things like, you know, the internet and Googling that we can easily find the answers. But God has repeatedly told us, no, you can't. You can't. There is a huge element of faith that is mysterious. And so what does it look like for us to embrace that mystery with confidence and assurance that God will reveal things to us in his timing um, and that we can walk assured in the uncertainties. Mm, mm. Yeah, it's definitely a mystery in terms of how do we explore the fact that like our minds are prone to wander and we're prone to desire things that are not good for us. And that's probably a, you know, a foundational aspect of counseling practice is addressing like what is going on within your body and your mind that is unhealthy. You're desiring these things that are not good for you and you need to understand your physiology in your psychosis to be able to better analyze what is the problem. I've heard the analogy of being uh, used, and I heard this, I think, from one of your counselors, Rob, I believe. Um, yeah, yeah. I think it's Smith, the Smith Counseling Center. Yeah. Um, talking about how our minds or our bodies can often be like an engine. And sometimes the check engine light comes on and these different things come on. And sometimes even the signals themselves can be broken. Mm. And like that's an essential aspect of counseling practice in psychology. Yeah, that's a great point. Absolutely. So... In your time, and I, I'm really fascinated by receiving your academic study that not only do you have expertise in clinical psych- psychology, but you also have a master's in theology alone, which is an achievement of itself. And I'm very fascinated about the intersection between theology um, and counseling psychology. And there's not as many, not as much cross work, uh, cross discipline work that needs to be done as needed. Um, so in your study and from your experience, what would you say is a theological framework with which we can understand the intersection between clinical psychology and theology? Mm, that's a great question. You know, I um, I believe that, you know, the Word of God is a living and breathing document, right? It's a living and breathing way of understanding who God created us to be in the world around us. And, um, and it has inherent truth. And so for me, I always start with Scripture. And some of Scripture I understand and some of Scripture I don't. Right away, right? And and when I spoke of context, I love, for me, reading the Bible in its entirety is so critical because I think we can take verses and we can apply verses, but if we don't understand the full scope of the message from the Old Testament to the New, we really miss out on what what God is telling us in the redemptive power of Jesus Christ and how his death and resurrection um, removed the significant barrier to being in relationship with God. And so I start there. But then I also believe he gifted us with knowledge and wisdom and creativity. And so as we experience things like technological advances, we start to understand a bit more about how the mind works and the body works. And I think it's easy for us to explain away certain things or to say, oh, well, that doesn't align with scripture. That's not what God is intending here. But what if we look at it within the context of what we're understanding about how we function as humans now is actually exactly what God was speaking to back then because he knows us, you know, from beginning to end. He knows exactly how he created us. So I think about commandments like taking our thoughts captive. You know, we can sort of use those as as sound bites, so to speak, um, and we understand their meaning. But when we start to see the brain and how the brain is affected by repetitive thoughts and behaviors— 
holy cow, that that message takes on a whole different meaning. It's not just about like, don't think a bad thought or don't have, you know, don't harbor ill will towards somebody. It's it's actually saying, no, your thoughts have the ability to transform your physical well-being, your relational well-being, your spiritual well-being. This can have like a catastrophic impact on your whole personhood. And so it's a discipline that maintains a course of wellness in the way that God created us. And so, you know, I understand that more so now because we have technology like brain scans and fMRIs, things that allow us to look at the structure of the brain and the chemical makeup of the brain. It doesn't change scripture. It helps me to understand scripture in broader and more applicable contexts. Yeah, it's definitely interesting to think about, as I think I mentioned earlier about, yeah, the book of nature in terms of understanding like who we are and this better understands and makes us be to be able to love our neighbor as ourselves as that's part of God's calling is that when we have mental wellness and good mental health, then we can better love our neighbors. We can better love our husbands and our children, better love our friends and our peers and our coworkers. Um, and would you say this has been something that's been more neglected uh, in the past? And why do you, I've definitely seen a rise in the discussion, even as I've, I've been on the floor in my time at Moody, about talking about going to counseling. And it's become much more common, even for, especially as a, I'm an RA, and I hear much more about guys who I would typically not think would go to counseling to say that I'm going to counseling now, um, that I'm like, and it's normal. Um, and even 10 years ago, this conversation would not be normal. Um, it would be a bit more stigmatized. What would you say has been, this, this change, this development, why has it become much more uh, normal uh, throughout this generation? Yeah, there's a number of factors. I think one of the big factors is necessity, right, is people are struggling. I mean, even when we talk about the context of a global pandemic, a lot of research is showing that once this pandemic sort of comes to an end, we're going to be facing a new pandemic, which is a mental health pandemic, because the rise of depression, anxiety, suicide, addiction, substance abuse has just been uh, astronomical in, in the midst of the pandemic. And that could be for a lot of reasons. You have people who are grieving, who've lost significant people and positions and, you know, finances in their life. They've been displaced. They've been isolated. Um, and all of that is has a huge bearing on our mental health and wellness. So so one, it's prevalent and we can't avoid that anymore. And so people are having the conversation. And I think, too, as we're understanding mental health and mental wellness, and let's put it in the context of Christianity, you know, historically speaking, the rise of psychology was based out of very Western ideals and um, kind of male dominated philosophies. And it was very self-focused. And so uh, a lot of times within Christian circles, because self-psychology was so predominant, it seemed very antithetical to our reliance on God and the transformative experience of the Holy Spirit. And so churches, I think, tended to shy away from or break from the practice of psychology because it was seen as um, secular. It was seen as as very independent and self-focused and not reliant on God. But again, as we've started to really understand how we function just as a body, as a physical body, um, we're starting to see like, oh, no. There is such a thing as mental illness, and it is impacted by the way our community functions and the way our relationships are working and the way that our genetics are expressed even. And so um, instead of seeing it as something that happens as a result of not relying on God, not praying enough, not reading scripture enough, people are realizing those are actually strategies to address 
our mental health and wellness, not to define why we're experiencing it. And so I think because the conversations are happening on these broader levels and because the need is so is so important, um, there's the stigma continues to be reduced every day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I've also definitely seen – and. I, I've seen the social dilemma. Maybe some of the viewers here have seen that. I'm sure you've definitely yep. seen that. Um, and I've also seen the connotation between between as te- social media and technology has become more accessible, we're much more aware of the presence of other people's lives. And everybody wants to create this kind of – I like to call it um, I, the platonic illusion of what our lives and the self and the good – what the good life is like. Mm-hmm. Um, the ideal life. And I think I saw some graph from that documentary talking about the rise in teenage – preteen suicide rates and the usage of Instagram amongst that demographic. Um, Would you say that's definitely social media and our connected world has definitely played a factor in the rise of mental health issues today? Absolutely. You know, I think, again, I go back to scripture and how, you know, you can take a verse and you can apply it to your life, but you can easily take that verse out of context if you're not understanding the bigger picture, mm-hmm. right? And and think about social media the same. If I pull up my Instagram account and I see a picture, um, a snapshot of someone's life, it's really easy for me to think that represents everything that's going on around them, that they're happy, that they're, you know, financially well off, that they're beautiful, that they're, uh, you know, secure in their relationship, that they're successful in their parenting skills, that they're completely engrossed in their church leadership or worship experience. And yet it's a picture. It's completely taken out of context. It only tells me for a brief second in time with perhaps even the magic of filters and strategically placed lighting and props, that's what this person's life looks like. But we create a narrative behind that. And then we internalize our own narrative within that context and we make the comparison to see what we don't have. Because that's another way in which our brain is oftentimes wired. We don't look at what's there, we look at what's missing. And so we go, I don't have that relationship. I don't look like that. I don't have that job opportunity or that child or that... Um, you know, that ministry experience, and we start to go, these are all the ways in which I fall short. And we're comparing it to a snapshot. Mm, mm, yeah, and it definitely relates to many aspects of Scripture, too, where I see a lot of the practices that we see commanded in Scripture, uh, it's, it's like we're children, right? We see this command, we don't want to do it because we want to do our own thing. But it's like being a child, right? You want to you want to eat candy and sugar all day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to go outside and play until 3 in the morning, Uh but then your parents come back and say, like, that's not good for you. You don't need that. Um, and it's, I've also seen the parallel well, as well um, in my own life that it's also with mental health and well-being. As many of these things and these practices that we don't want to do or participate in, oftentimes they're for our best practice. Um, I think I saw an article from um, Christianity Today talking about mental health, well-being, um, and weekly church attendance. Um, and there's so many different examples I can, I think I could bring up, but would you say that's kind of like a, an analogy of us as children, um, is, is proper for describing how oftentimes we disobey, maybe sometimes it's kind of land of scripture and they're actually good for our mental well-being. Would you say that's accurate? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think of Paul, right? I mean, he speaks to this exact same analogy when he, when he's talking to the church and saying, you're all acting like babies still needing, you know, the, the nourishment of, uh, of nursing from your mother when you should be eating spiritual solid food. Uh, and so, yeah, we, we have to, I mean, I wrote a whole book on this concept, Embracing Uncomfortable. Mm. And the message behind the book is so often we choose to engage in 
often practices that are familiar, that are habitual, that bring a momentary sense of comfort. And I think about years ago, I was I was supervising, uh, I lived in Virginia, and I was supervising a new student in the field. And I remember he said, I'm trying really hard in this season of doing my internship and finishing up grad school and getting married and, you know, uh, having to work and all these other things. It's like, I'm trying to prioritize my well-being. But it seems like every morning when my alarm goes off, because the only time that I can actually hit the gym is 5 a.m., all I think about is all the reasons why I don't want to go. I'm warm. I'm comfortable. I'm tired. Going to the gym sounds terrible. And he said, I had this epiphany. I'm never going to want to go to the gym. I'm never going to like going to the gym. So if I can just embrace the reality that it's always going to be uncomfortable, maybe I can actually motivate myself to go based on all the reasons why it's good for me. And that shift in mindset for him and what he shared with me in that really motivated me because it caused me to look at what am I prioritizing in my life because it's comfortable momentarily versus really pursuing the things that are consistent with what's what I value and what's most important to me. But maybe in the moment in order to get there is uncomfortable. And that could be things like going to counseling or setting healthy boundaries or recognizing I'm in a season of depression and I need to reach out and, you know, engage with my community. Yeah. And another aspect I think I've noticed too, and I, I saw another article from Christianity Today about this, but um, it's talking about instant gratification. And oftentimes how we can treat things maybe like our devotions is like we expect an instant reward from it because that's what our culture and often at times that's what modern marketing and business tactics can lead to is like how can we lead to as much instant gratification as possible? Like how you look at on you go to Amazon, you see like the one-click buy option, instant gratification. Yep. Um, how would you say we need to understand instant gratification in its relation to long-term well-being? Mm. I think it's a muscle we're unfortunately continuing to allow to atrophy. I mean, it's interesting, even before we re- recorded this episode, I was in studio recording an episode for my podcast and uh, Becoming Well, and, and my producer, we were talking about the length of the episodes, and she was saying, you know, research is showing that our attention span as a human race is getting you know, shorter and shorter. And that's a discipline. I mean, we can build up the muscle of our brain, but we can also allow it to atrophy. So I think how are we intentionally exercising ourselves to engage in things that, you know, maybe delay gratification or going back to to what I said earlier, allow us to sit in the gray in order to fully understand the context of what's around us versus just kind of making a snap judgment or decision on, you know, a certain perspective or a certain way of viewing the world or a certain way we engage in relationship. Yeah, yeah. And I think another question a lot of people also have too in in this discussion about talking about the spiritual matter of science in relation to our psychosis in our bodies um, is like what is the soul's relation to the brain? Um, And there's various perspectives on like what is the immaterial aspect of a human being um, from a Christian perspective. Um, So could you describe for us a basic framework for understanding um, the immaterial aspect, whether people call the soul, the spirit within us, and also our physical bodies? How should we understand this intersection? Yeah, I think about, you know, how God calls us to honor him with our whole mind, our whole heart, our whole soul, our whole body, um, and how those things are are so intertwined. You know, I, I work with clients and they're struggling with depression, but it impacts their spiritual walk. And we we tend to think of those things as separate. We try to we try to segment them out. So, you know, when 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 God created Adam, God breathed 
life into Adam, breathed spirit into Adam. And we were we were left with the blessing of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus' ascension into heaven. And so there are, I mean, going back to my to, to the verse that I read, we have heaven, we have eternity placed on our hearts. So there are elements of mystery that we can't explain away with cognitive, rational thoughts. And so what does it look like for us to be attuned to and to be patient with discerning the promptings of the Holy Spirit? Um, because I like the concept that you bring up, instant gratification, I think tends to, if anything, diminish that element of our holistic well-being, the ability to, to wait on the Lord, to be patient, to seek God's wisdom um, and the promptings of the Holy Spirit, and then to act. And right now it's like, act, right? We, we have, we're facing a decision. I got to figure it out. I mean, there's so much about our world that's just causing us to feel wired in that way. And so what does it look like to really acknowledge and to, um, and to, to honor the way in which God created us? I use the analogy of a light bulb uh, quite often, right? You've got the glass that encases um, the 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 uh, wiring that that lights and and expresses the light to the world and that's all parts of who we are. Um, we've got the material and the immaterial. And so, what does it look like to honor honor each of those and to recognize that there is there is going to be a spiritual dimension to every part of who we are that that we can't explain away with the world or with you know. Uh, things that are observable or tangible. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, makes me think about understanding proper boundaries in theology as well. Um, like we don't, we can't overexplain in terms of the hypostatic union. God is fully man um, and fully God, all in one. And so, also, there's a mystery to ourselves too in terms of the intersection between the material and the immaterial within us. And obviously, as Christians, we believe there's an immaterial side to us. Um, and I remember I talked to uh, Doctor Neely about this. Um, and I was like, how do you understand this intersection? I'm, I'm really confused. Um, and I think one thing he said was that the body affects the spiritual and the spiritual affects the body. It's So oftentimes maybe we're working really hard and we're getting four hours of sleep a night. And some people may misdiagnose themselves and say this is a spiritual issue. I'm not in the word enough. I'm not in prayer. I'm not going to church. I'm not loving my neighbor as myself. But in reality, it's like, hey, man, like – you got to get some sleep, you yeah. know? <laughs> we got to get a seven, seven, eight, seven to nine hours of sleep is recommended for adults, I believe. Um, well, and scripture talks to that too, exactly. right? I mean, I think about so many times, and this is why I love reading the contextual big picture of the Bible is you've got these practices that we might look at if we're just reading the New Testament as, you know, overburdensome and, and uh, you know, dogmatic, and yet there's a purpose to them. Like God created these rules and rhythms to life because our body needed it. There was times to to plant and to harvest, and there was time to rest. Um, and 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 God was very clear that rest is an act of holiness and worship to me because our bodies need that time to rejuvenate. So we need seven, eight hours of sleep at night. We need to put away distractions, and we need to, you know, take a break from our labors and our toils. Yeah, and. It's also about, you know, body maintenance and along with that also comes with mental health maintenance as well is that just as, you know, doctors say that you need to exercise and get enough sleep and eat well, we also need to make sure that we're engaging um, in proper thinking, not telling ourselves lies. And something that I've been really interested in recently more um, as I've been going through counseling is the, the idea and concept of affirmations. Mm -hmm. um, and I've been like so surprised by its effectiveness in my own life and being able to like help calm me down, lower my anxiety levels, make me be more grounded in the present and in reality and in who God is and 
knowing like that he is sovereign, that he's in my life. Um, and I often hear that like lots of times our anxiety um, can be rooted out of unbelief. And I don't want a blanket statement over like the whole field of the study of anxiety, but that can oftentimes be like, I am anxious because I don't believe like these things. I don't believe that God loves me in my life. Uh, I don't believe that he's working in my life. I don't believe that he's truly like gonna has a plan for uh, my life and that he's in charge of my life. Um, can you expand upon the the concept of affirmations? Um, and obviously you can draw from so many examples from scripture about Jesus being like, you know, like you need to believe. Uh, or like there was the, uh, the Roman centurion soldier. I was like, I believe, help my unbelief. Yeah. Um, could you expand upon the topic um, and uh, the idea of affirmations in our lives? Yeah, I, I think, you know, a couple of things come to mind. First of all, this is a great example of how I think Scripture informs our understanding of how God created us and why he gives us certain prescriptions throughout Scripture. Um, be anxious about nothing. And we stop there, I think, a lot of times as Christians. And we can feel a sense of shame because we interpret, oh, if I'm anxious, I'm not trusting God enough. But no, there's there's a prescription that follows that, right? Be anxious about nothing. But through prayer, petition, and thanksgiving, make your request known to God. And there's that key word, thanksgiving. And um, they've actually been able to study the effect of gratitude on the brain. And the practice of gratitude, simply acknowledging the blessings and the giftings in our lives, the things that are present versus the things that are absent, changes structures in our brain. And it changes these things called neurotransmitters. And neurotransmitters are responsible for receiving and, and giving off communication. And you have neurotransmitters that are more receptive to positive input and neurotransmitters that are more receptive to negative input. And when we practice gratitude, we increase the number of neurotransmitters that are more receptive to positivity at the expense of those that are more receptive to negativity. So the positive ones kind of kill off the negative ones. Um, and yet, how often do we look for what's missing, right? Or we acknowledge what's missing. And we also forget the ways in which God has provided for us. So then I go back to the Old Testament. I think about all of the times in which God's people built reminders of God's faithfulness. Um, wells were so often a way of remembering God's provision and God's timing and God's faithful commitment to fulfill his promises. And so I think in our present day and age, gratitude can serve as a way of reminding us that God is present, is active, is working, um, and that we can rest assured in that. Mm, yeah, sometimes our, yeah, like I said, like that the song, like, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Um, it's been something I I tell myself too. Um, is that like I'm I'm just so forgetful um, of the truth of God's word. Um, the truth that He He cares for me, that He's in my life, um, and also the fact that like oftentimes like the heart is deceitful above all things, um, and that can be a confusing thing um, field to explore as well. Um, but oftentimes, yeah, this issue has been definitely a discussion and development within the church. And I think I've I've seen a lot of positive. Uh, ground being gained through the, the topic and discussion of addressing mental health issues. Um, and so one thing I really, I've, been, I've thought about too, actually, is chronic, chronic disorders in relation to like understanding who we are. We have, you know, there are be people who are in a depressive season. And then there's also people who have depressive chronic disorders where their neurotransmitters cannot fire a proper amount of dopamine or the receptors can't receive dopamine coming in. Um, and I've heard this is also a condition in relation to anxiety as well, chronic anxiety. How do we understand um, chronic mental health disorders in relation to the image of God and maybe also the fall of humanity as well? Yeah. You know, I think one of the things that we can do is make sure that we really understand 
And you described it in such a great way, the reality of how mental illness presents itself, right? Because oftentimes because it's not as tangible as, say, having a broken arm or having a surgery to cure an illness, we think of mental illness as simply something we've conjured up whether consciously or unconsciously. And so when we can actually understand that it's caused by very tangible organic elements of our biology, but also our environment and our relationships, perhaps then we can give more compassion to understanding it, right? So I think about, are we having the same conversation with somebody who has an autoimmune disorder and they experience chronic physical illness? No, we oftentimes don't look at those in the same way, and yet they're very much rooted in biology, um, and so then I think we ca- we come at it from a way of looking at, you know, whether it's internally to ourselves or exter- externally to the world around us, how do we see the image of God reflected in all of humanity? And I think we tend to fall into the trap of popular culture in defining what humanity is supposed to look like. Mm. And yet, you know, that's so antithetical to the to Jesus's ministry. I mean, he he created community with the people in society that were oftentimes considered the least of the humans. And yet his message in doing that was to say, no, this is a reflection of me. These these individuals are created in the image of God. We collectively are the body. And so whether somebody has experienced a chronic physical or mental health illness, I think, how are we connecting with people as an us versus a we and a them? Because that's what Jesus did. Yeah. Yeah, it's so important. I think I heard, I saw this uh, quote from uh, a video from a faith leader uh, from a nonprofit on this YouTube channel called Jubilee. Um, and it was talking about how everyone deserves to be, I think you see, seen, known, loved, and heard. Um, and how those are such basic aspects of our needs. Um, and there's varying levels of needs in every culture. And probably one of the greatest needs um, in America is not so much financial um, or certain resources that are physical and tangible, but more about community needs. Uh, with the rise in isolation and loneliness and the lack of relationships being had even amongst people in Gen Z. You can see so many of these issues um, stemming out from a lot of the social environments. And it's just amazing the example that Jesus gives to us about, like, what did he care about? He wasn't care about material possessions. He cared about relationships, making sure people are seen, known, loved, and heard. Yeah, very true. So as you've worked with the church and more specifically your field is within evangelicalism. What do you think is the how the church could better address issues of mental health today? What do you think is some work they could be doing to make sure that this is not something that's stigmatized but is an essential discussion because there are cases where this can lead to suicide um, in other extreme circumstances. Um, what do you think the church can do to better address this issue? I, you know, it's interesting. One of the ways in which the conversation continues to be pushed is also because pastors are experiencing alarmingly high rates of mental illness and mm. mental health disorders, right? We're seeing an, an increase in burnout, depression, anxiety, and suicide among pastors. And so um, I, I think sharing your testimony from the pulpit, being a willingness to be vulnerable and to, um, to, to discuss openly some of the struggles and challenges you've had invites your congregation to have the conversation as well. You know, it, it communicates to people you're not alone in this. 
so that's one. Uh, have more sermons around mental health and wellness. You know, use scripture to to speak into this area. Um, but also, you know, I think back to historically, like the Black Church and its role in America, and. You know, so often back when the African-American community couldn't get access to resources that the rest of the community, particularly to, to, to white Americans, had access to, like quality health care and, and healthy food and, um, you know, just just insurance, health insurance and things like that, the the black church came and stepped into that void. And so you see today even that members of the African-American community are more likely to go to a pastor, their local church for the, for, to get their needs met, to get referrals, to get connections, to, to have the church and the pastor speak into these areas of life because they trust the church more Mm. than they trust greater society. Right. And so I think when the church is then saying, let me connect you to quality mental health counselors, let's run a group on how to navigate depression and anxiety or, or a Sunday school class on what it means to care for a loved one who's struggling with mental illness or a grief and loss support group. I think all of those are ways in which we both normalize the conversation but provide services and support that are so critical to meeting an important need uh, for the congregation and the surrounding community that they serve. Mm, yeah, and I think something I've also maybe thought um, is like having counselors within the church that Absolutely. people can go up to um, in person. And, you know, there's, there's so many questions that can go into this about how to resource. And I mean, even my church personally, it's a, it's a smaller church of about 80 people. And I mean, our pastors are have training in counseling, but not, they're not, you know, it's clinically certified counselors, but they're connected with uh, a Christian clinical mental health counseling organization. Um, but yeah, it's been encouraging to me to see this discussion become much more yeah prevalent um, and healthy within our generation. And the needs are going up um, in terms of the rates of suicide and depression and anxiety that we see within this generation. Um, and I see the church just being able to play such a beautiful role um, in the future with the role uh, with the place that it has in society and people's lives. Absolutely. So, Dr. Gordon. Um, as we wrap up our time, I, this is one question. I, every professor hates this question but loves it at the same time. Um, what is one book, obviously aside from the Bible, uh, that you think everyone should read and probably more in relation to the field of study that you work in? Yeah, I love that question actually. So I will be the one person who says I will fully embrace it because I love to read. Um, you know, it's interesting, and I'll, I'll answer the question with with some context. Uh, one of the things that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very aware of in our field is how to be a counselor to all people. Kind of like Paul said, I want to be all things to all people. And and I think a lot of times we think I, that means I have to lay down my own needs and I have to be a servant. And we take that out of context a lot. But I think it means how do I fully understand the person sitting across from me and all the unique facts in their life that makes them them versus imposing on them my understanding, perhaps based on my own experience or my own biases and the, the way that I was raised uh, into who I think that that would make them the optimal version of themselves. So to that end, somebody recommended Dr. Eric Redman. He's my book guru. Mm. Love Dr. Redman. He recommended a book recently, he recommends probably 75% of the books that I read, called um, Becoming All Things by Dr. Michelle Reyes. And it's a book more, you know, it's 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 a it's a Christian book and it's written towards probably more ministry leaders and 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 Christian leaders and pastors, but I've used it in the context of my mental health practice and even with my students because it's about valuing the diversity 
diversity of God's creation and how to be more multiculturally humble and aware and appreciative of the differences between us that make us unique as a body of Christ, but also, you know, recognizing that all of God's people is made in God's image. And so how are we honoring our brothers and sisters um, from diverse backgrounds and walks of life and, um, and, and cultures and heritages and ethnicities? And so for me, that's had a huge impact just on how I uh, approach the clients that I work with, how I how I minister to my students, uh, how I connect with my colleagues, valuing the diversity that that should be celebrated um, and honored and learned as we engage as a as a unique body of Christ. Yeah, that's definitely something I've noticed too. Is I I hang out with a lot of international students here on campus, um, and even as someone that's um, I'm, a, I'm a missionary kid from Japan. Uh, I'm half Japanese, half white, so I'm, I'm more of a racial minority on campus, um, is, yeah, just the essential aspect that is to be seen and known on how oftentimes being a minority um, in majority spaces. And I'm, I, I see this experience also from my experience being in Japan and being a minority there as well, um, about how important it is to be seen and known and loved and how hard it is really for certain minorities to be able to be seen, known, heard, and loved when people don't understand their context, they understand their language, they understand the different presuppositions that go into culture and how you think. Um, and that is definitely something that I have noticed that there is a need for as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think to me it says, I want to come and meet you where you're at versus giving or imposing the expectation on you that you come to where I'm at because we're all on a level playing field here. So I've loved the book and I highly recommend it to everybody. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Dr. Michelle Reyes as well. So I'm definitely going to get around to that way. <laughs> Maybe when I have more time to read after I'm done with my undergrad program here. Um, but Dr. Gordon, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show today. It's been a pleasure to have you. Uh, and yeah, this show will be out soon. And so I hope you can be able to tune in. And there will be more episodes to come as well. So uh, thank you so much, Dr. Gordon, for coming on the show. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Moody Profcast. The Moody Profcast is a production hosted, produced, and edited by Jonas Swenson in partnership with the professors of the Moody Bible Institute. Graphics are by Aaron Goodfellow. The music featured is the song Autumn 2011 by Locksbeats. We'd also like to thank Moody Radio and the Moody Communications Department for letting us use their facilities for this production. Tune in again to the Moody Profcast to learn more about how theology intersects with our culture.